Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Wikipedia. I hope you are having a fabulous week. Now today I'm super excited to bring to you a conversation I had with Lily Nichols who is a registered dietitian and nutritionist based in the States. She's a certified diabetes educator, researcher and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and Lily really challenges conventional guidelines in and around pregnancy nutrition and um, has made a real name for herself in this space. She's been influential in nutrition policy, she helps educate other dietitians in gestational diabetes and she is really well known for being research focused, thorough and sensible. She has two best-selling books, one of them Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and an online course and an online course of the same name. And this presents a revolutionary, nutrient-dense, lower-carb approach for managing gestational diabetes. And her work has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their GD, most without the need for blood sugar lowering medication but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally and she has a second book real food for pregnancy and that's an evident but evidence-based book looking at the gap between the conventional prenatal nutrition guidelines and what is actually optimal for mother and baby and pretty comprehensive has over 930 citations now the, one of the other best things about Lily, I suppose, is she's a mother as well. So if you look, go onto her website, um, which is lilynicholsrdn.com, or um, by any of her books, you will see some really practical information in and around um, pregnancy and prenatal, uh, postnatal nutrition. And Lily and I had such a great conversation about how she got into the field of real food, real food nutrition, how she felt going through her education and what she was learning compared to what she understood was really, you know, good for, for overall kind of health and well-being. And then her journey, her professional journey and personal journey in and around the nutrition and pregnancy space. We talked about some common deficiencies in pregnancy, morning sickness, vegetarian pregnancy, and also some of the issues in and around folate versus folic acid, which I found super fascinating. And Lily really is such a wealth of information in this area. So settle in, enjoy this conversation with Lily, and I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. Uh, pregnant woman or not, you know, I just think she's, you know, so much of her stuff is really just founded on good common sense. And it was just a real pleasure and privilege to be able to speak with her. So um, Lily, hi, welcome. Nice to see you. Thanks for taking the time to come and uh, chat to us today. Thanks for having me. 
you will know from the introduction that um, kind of where Lily sits in the space of real food nutrition. And um, I first heard of you, Lily, on Rob Wolf, I think in 2015, when you came on to talk about your first book that I believe was just being published then, which is Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And I just remember thinking that it was unconventional for a dietitian who'd worked in diabetes education to be speaking about real food actually because it's not it's not often the case here in New Zealand do you want to I'm really interested to know how you kind of got into it into the real food side of things yeah into the real food side of things is it something from your background your family or is it something that you kind of discovered through your training to kind of lead you on the path you're in now so yeah it goes back kind of a ways my family was definitely um, health conscious and of the mindset that what you eat matters. So, you know, my mom would not buy soda and, you know, was fairly strict on sugar, although we did have treats and things. She wasn't like crazy strict where we had no fun. Um, But we never had soda in the house, for example, that was not a default. Uh, So, I was interested in nutrition early on and I, and I was sort of made aware even as a young kid, how you feel differently when you eat certain things. So say when it was Halloween and we have a bunch of candy and I'd be like, Oh, my tummy hurts. My mom would be like, yeah, that's what happens when you eat too much sugar, you know? So just making that simple connection from a very young age, I think it, you know, it really, it, it shapes you. You have some, appreciation of the fact that food influences how you feel. And fast forward to high school, I knew I wanted to study nutrition, started getting more interested in it. And I came across the work of uh, Dr. Weston Price Mm. at that time and um, was recommended by a nutritionist mentor of mine to read Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon. So by the time I went through my undergraduate training, which was in a conventional dietetics program, I already had sort of this like real food slant in my head. Um, When I started getting really interested in nutrition in high school, I was actually vegetarian at the time and had my Mm. health really decline significantly. And that's how the whole Western price thing got brought up. And so that was a big overhaul of my diet, uh, you know, before I was even 20 years old. Yeah. And so I had a bit of that, you know, nourishing traditions sort of in my head as I'm going through my nutrition training so that I really wasn't viewing everything that I was learning through rose colored glasses. I was really quite critical of what I learned and really used that opportunity to, you know, have when you have access to medical journals as a student to really dive into the research and be like, okay, they keep talking about vitamin A and why it's so important and vitamin K2. There was like barely any research on vitamin K2 Mm. back then. Um, And you know, how how, uh, the way that we grow and raise our foods impacts the nutrient value of the food. I mean, those are things that I don't think my classmates were necessarily um, thinking of. And I also just knew from in my body, like I felt better when I ate real food. And so I was already, even though it took me a long time to incorporate what I would consider an adequate amount of animal foods into my diet, because uh, just because we've all been so indoctrinated from a young age that fat is bad, right? 
I did a lot of that undoing over many years. And so even when I was in nutrition school and we had to do, you know, a dietary uh, analysis of what we're eating and like my diet was pretty much like 50% fat, which actually that really isn't that high. Um, no. But for a dietitian student, it was like, oh my God, 50% fat, you know, because they tell you, you know, 30% or less of your calories from fat. Um, but I just knew like I felt well mm-hmm. um, eating that way. And so it's kind of been this long journey of really taking a very critical look at the evidence that has, you know, come to. Uh, either the lack of evidence that was there when they made up the dietary guidelines, but also the new evidence that kind of undoes any value that they bring to the table. So as this comes into play in my current work, um, focusing mostly on pre and postnatal nutrition, I mean, certainly Dr. Price's work underscores some of that because he was observing that people eating a their traditional diet, which had plenty of animal foods and animal fats alongside vegetables and fruits and whatever is locally available to them, um, promoted greater fertility, healthier children, mm. you know, lowered the risk of, of major um, birth defects and such. And so um, a lot of my work has been like, okay, where, where are the guidelines at? Why are they set where they are? Where are the gaps in the research on things? Um, what are the nutrients, especially the micronutrients that we need the most of to, you know, either get pregnant, but also Mm -hmm. stay pregnant and sustain a healthy pregnancy, recover well postpartum, um, breastfeed with, you know, uh, sufficient nutrients transferring into our breast milk even. Um, And there's actually quite a bit of data which backs up these very early observations um, that, he had. So that's yeah. kind of my work is like reverse engineering what would be, you know, an optimal nutrient intake for a prenatal and uh, postnatal diet. That's so interesting. Like I, um, when I went through nutrition school, of course, I did not have your, your real food bent. So I didn't have that critical eye. And I think it's really unusual, actually, for people who are so young to to have that, Lily, you know, like it really, and I think it takes courage to kind of look at what you're being taught and kind of go, actually, I don't think that's right. Like, particularly here in New Zealand, people always talk about Kiwis as just kind of, you know, going with the flow or we're not big questioners of authority. And that's a real, that, that is a broad generalization. I appreciate that. Um, so I didn't, you know, when I went through nutrition school, I was just like, uh-huh, yep, cool. Give it to me, give me what I need to, you know, get my degree. Were you shocked? Like, I don't know, like, what was your reaction when you went to school and they were teaching you these things, which you, you, you were, were you like, oh, hang on, I don't think that's right. Like, did you question them, I guess? Or did you just quietly kind of go, well, I know that that's not right. And I'm going to kind of, you know, look into it myself, but I just have to toe the line. Yeah, well, it was a little bit of both. Um, so, you know, first of all, I was definitely the odd man or odd woman out of my classmates. There weren't many who were equally questioning things. But I think uh, just as probably anybody who's grown up in the public school system, um, where, you know, we really are taught how to like, sit down and shut up and memorize. (laughs) um, Really, I mean, that's kind of what's going on. Uh, I, I, you know, I know how to play the game. So I wasn't always forthright with my questioning, Mm. but I did get very good practice at 
choosing topics for projects. So, so, you know, something like Splenda. I remember I did a project on Splenda, breaking down the chemical structure and how it's like a chlorocarbon and like, oh my God, all the chlorocarbons are like really bad. And back then we didn't really have much evidence to say Splenda was yay or nay. Now we have a whole lot more evidence showing that it does in fact disrupt the microbiome just like you'd expect from any chlorocarbon and whatnot. Um, but I did projects on that. I did projects on, um, I remember I did one on phytic acid mm. and going through the data on soaking, sprouting and fermenting whole grains, beans and legumes, um, even nuts and seeds to show how it differentially affected mineral absorption, for example. Mm. So those are, you know, seeds planted in my head from reading some of the Western price literature where I was like, I don't know if that's actually true or if this is just another <laughs> somebody making up this story, yeah. right? And so I kind of used the opportunity to get really familiar with the uh, research journals and how to sort of piece together what's actually going on here. Mm. Um, and then, of course, I did have some really good professors as well. Like, I don't think we can throw nutritional education completely under the bus because it is beneficial having a background in biology and chemistry and biochemistry. And I had some really excellent professors who focused on like micronutrients and fertility, for example, which obviously has um, also influenced my work. Uh, but, you know, you do have to know when to just smile and nod and understand that, you know, yes, these programs are funded by essentially, you know, big food and big agriculture companies, um, really, at the end of the day, and that there's limitations to, you know, what we what they knew when they set up the dietary guidelines and understand that you're working within a system, you know, and mm -hmm. when you're training to be a dietitian, you are being trained to be somebody who works is prepared to work on an entry level in a hospital, yeah. as a dietitian for the roles that a dietitian serves in a hospital. So yeah. uh, it prepares you for that quite well. And then if you want to step outside of that, there's going to be a lot of unlearning and relearning you need to do. Um, I just think I happened to do a lot of that unlearning and relearning a little earlier in my career. So I could just kind of step outside the box once I got my credentials and like, just get out of the system. <laughs> because yeah. It's a frustrating one to work in when you know that, you know, you can potentially be doing clients harm by giving outdated advice. Yeah. So um, it puts you in a really interesting, like moral ethical quandary where you, you just have to make a hard call. Are you going to continue to work in this system and try to elicit change? Um, or are you going to just get outside of the system and do it from a grassroots level? Yeah, nice. And early in your career, did you work in a diabetes education system with um, people with diabetes with in pregnancy, am I right about that, Lily? So you were actually in the system for a couple of years before kind of going out and, and going out on your own? Yes. So, I mean, I did my internship, which is about a year long at a major yeah. hospital um, in Los Angeles. Um, we did see gestational diabetes, not a ton of it, but we did, mm -hmm. you know, have time in, in the pregnancy um, maternity ward. And then I worked with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is a, you know, a state level 
program that sets the public policy for the state on managing gestational diabetes, um, which is optional for clinics to use or not. Um, mm -hmm. But I was among the small group of dietitians who were revising those guidelines. And then I also worked clinically for a perinatologist specializing in gestational diabetes for a few years as well. That was putting those guidelines into practice and seeing just how poorly they performed in real life. Um, so a lot of that experience was really uh, what led me to decide to write my book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, to get better information out there. Um, mm. And that was, you know, it was a, an outpatient office, right? It's like not, not an inpatient in the hospital ward. And um, the medical directors there were very pro-nutrition. And so they were um, very open to revising things to have them work as best as possible to minimize the need for medication and insulin. So it was an interesting role in that I was not as forced to stay within a very small box of like, if you don't follow the guidelines exactly, like you're going to lose your job. Like they were very encouraging, um, very into research. Our, our office was associated with UCLA Medical School. And so we had residents coming in and out. And usually when there's any sort of a student teaching aspect in a place, mm -hmm. they usually are more open to new ways of seeing things. So that was a really very, very unique opportunity um, to have both like the public policy angle and then also the um, patient experience in, in a very forward thinking practice, um, as well as when I was working with the state, I was uh, training other dietitians and nutritionists on nutrition for pregnancy and for gestational diabetes exercise for pregnancy and whatnot. And so the more that it's kind of interesting when you see it from those different angles, um, mm. because I think a lot of practitioners get very stuck in like the clinical practice angle and then, and they never question the guidelines and then the policy people never see what's happening in clinical practice. Yeah. And so there's not, and you see this in research too, right? You have these researchers who are so stuck in their labs that they don't have a real world understanding for things. So I, you know, I have quite a few researchers who contact me to consult for a, you know, study protocol that they're putting together for say gestational diabetes or postpartum. And it's like, they don't have enough of the real world background to actually design a study that's going to test what they need to test. Yeah. You know, the, so yeah. it's just, it's been fascinating to see things from many different angles. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's that real, you know, you can test a theory in a lab and in a clinical controlled trial, things might go according to, you know, you you test a hypothesis and it comes out in this controlled environment, that's what you're going to get. But then stick that same protocol in real life. And then now you're dealing with like flawed humans who actually have lives and <laughs> and all these other things going on around them, which, which means it's not really cookie cutter or, or perfect. Um, so Lily, can you just describe for people if it's all right, like your, what your recommendations are around gestational diabetes for, for women, because I see many women um, as clients who are kind of new to pregnancy. And this is one, this is a conversation that we have, you know, what do I do to reduce my risk, particularly if they've got like a family history or, or they've had it previously? What are your recommendations? How do they differ from what the standard recommendations might be? Okay. So I'll, I'll tackle prevention first and, and say that 
you know, we know that there are diet and lifestyle factors that can influence the development of gestational diabetes, but there is not a silver bullet where we know if you do like this exact protocol, you are 100% of the time going to prevent it. Like there are so many risk factors that aren't within our control, like say a family history of type two diabetes, or maybe your mom had gestational diabetes in her pregnancy and that induces epigenetic changes on your body and your pancreas and your insulin production, which can then come to light when you're um, pregnant, even if you're not aware that there's any blood sugar aberrations. Uh, so there's, I just have to throw out that, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, disclaimer. <laughs> so people don't get their hopes up, but I will say there, there are some um, important things. So for example, we know higher intake of processed foods, especially refined carbohydrates. So things made with white flour, anything made with sugar, high fructose corn syrup, um, we know those are associated with a higher risk of gestational diabetes in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. We know lack of exercise is a big factor. So um, even in women who exercise, you know, I think it's two to three times a week for, gosh, I'd have to remember the exact study, but it's a reasonable amount of time, no more than 30 to 60 minutes a day, two to three times a week, their risk of gestational diabetes is cut by, I believe it was 69%. Wow. Um, so exercise plays a big role in your um, insulin sensitivity. Mm. So that one's an important factor. Um, vitamin D levels, uh, magnesium levels, uh, potentially chromium levels, uh, early supplementation with inositol, um, which is a B vitamin-like uh, compound, especially in people who have known risk factors like a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome. We know that those things can reduce the risk. Mm. Um, and also people who start their pregnancy at a healthy weight versus starting their pregnancy in the BMI categories that we'd call overweight or obese are at a lower risk of uh, developing gestational diabetes. So if you have the time for preconception prep and can get your vitamin D levels optimized, some of your micronutrient intakes optimized, um, start your pregnancy at a healthy weight, act, be active and, and incorporate movement into your lifestyle, those can help reduce the risk. As far as uh, treatment modalities for gestational diabetes, now some of the guidelines differ country to country, but they are pretty similar across mm. the board. Um, the diagnostic criteria is often very different, but the um, dietary recommendations are pretty similar country to country. And I know in the U.S., for example, the conventional recommendations are to consume, you know, a low-fat diet with a carbohydrate intake no less than 175 grams per day. Mm. Uh, they, they do, in their credit, recommend, you know, fresh produce, lots of vegetables. Um, they recommend, you know, adequate protein intake. Mm. Uh, however, when you actually see the guidelines in practice, oftentimes you're looking at meal plans that have, you know, a minimum 45 grams of carbohydrates per meal. Yeah. And when you see it in practice, and just to, you know, just to get people thinking about this, a lot of times we diagnose gestational diabetes with a glucose tolerance test. So you give mm -hmm. a certain amount of glucose and then monitor blood sugar levels afterwards. And depending on how the test is done, it can be anywhere from 50 to 75 to 100 grams of glucose. So if somebody has taken, say, the 50 gram screening test, which is 
um, something that's often used in the US. We do a two-step method. The first test is 50 grams of glucose. If you fail that, technically that means your body does not handle 50 grams of glucose. In other words, 50 grams of carbohydrates at one time. Mm. And yet we have meal plans that are frequently recommending 45 grams of carbohydrates or 65 or 60 grams or 75 grams of carbohydrates per meal. And then we expect these people to have normal blood sugar readings afterwards. Mm. I mean, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance um, built into these recommendations. And, you know, unfortunately, they all spring from a whole lot of assumptions and extrapolations made from the general dietary guidelines, Mm. which have plenty of uh, room for improvement. So what I find instead works better in practice is to not restrict fat, because Mm -hmm. usually in the diet, you know, you have your three macronutrients, fat, carbohydrates, and protein. Protein intake can only go to a certain threshold. It has such a high level of satiety that it's very hard to overeat protein. So the rest of the balance becomes kind of a war between carbs and fat. So Mm -hmm. if your diet is low fat, it's automatically high carb. Um, So if we're going to go below 175 grams of carbohydrates, you're going to have to make up the caloric difference with fat. Um, But it's also more satiating. The fat, if you're not processing your real food sources of protein, your fat tends to come alongside your protein-rich foods as well. So it all works together really seamlessly and beautifully in real life. Mm. Um, But it does mean a higher intake of fat. Um, I also recommend a little more protein than the guidelines. Um, Mm. As of 2015, we had the first ever study assessing protein needs of pregnant women. All the previous recommendations were based on guesstimates for the most part. And they found that protein needs in pregnancy were seriously underestimated. So protein needs need to also be higher. And then we also just have a slightly reduced amount of carbohydrate and people don't need to go full on keto or anything, um, but they certainly don't need to have 45 grams of carbohydrates at Mm. every meal. Mm. You can, I believe, titrate your carbohydrate level down to the place where you experience normal blood sugar readings after your meals. So the amount of carbohydrates that somebody's going to tolerate, you know, person A, B, and C might be all different. There might be person C who can easily tolerate 180 or so grams of carbs a day, maybe even more. Um, They're likely somebody who has kind of a mild case of gestational diabetes, who's fairly active, who has you know, decent insulin sensitivity and so on. And then you have might have person B who's somewhere in the middle and person A who needs to be um, much more strict and get most of their carbohydrates from, you know, high fiber, low glycemic sources like green leafy vegetables, uh, nuts and seeds, berries, Greek yogurt, which is strained and has less lactose and thus less carbohydrates. Like you'll just have a range but we need to allow people the option to do that yeah. instead of the way the current guidelines work. It's you have to eat your 175 grams no matter what. If you don't, it's going to be harmful, which is uh, false. Then there's a whole chapter in Real Food for Gestational Diabetes outlining why that's um, false. Yeah. Um, but we need to give people, you know, A, accurate information and B, allow them to you know, take an empowered 
approach to managing it, which is just kind of not possible if you're making them force feed themselves high amounts of carbohydrates, feel miserable, have super high blood sugar. Um, maybe they're a person who does not want to be on medication or insulin, but then is kind of forced into it. Mm. It makes for a very stressful and resentful um, pregnancy experience. Yeah, completely. And it's interesting around the protein. So it appears to me that, you know, whenever we talk about protein, the rhetoric out there is everyone gets adequate protein. New Zealanders, or at least New Zealanders, you know, or the Western world has no problems getting their adequate protein. But the reference they're using is that 0.8 grams per kg body weight kind of protein. And they're not using the more up-to-date kind of thinking around it from the people who actually research the field. Interesting with regards to what you described with that new new study being published, is that something that you think would be going into the review of guidelines every so you know five years or I mean you could only hope I suppose but you can hope you know one one little nugget of hope is that uh, the Czech Republic have updated their guidelines as of 2016. Um, a diabetologist in their country got a hold of my book and was able to elicit some policy change. So they made a flip-flop on their gestational diabetes guidelines where instead of their previous guidelines said a minimum of mm-hmm. 200 grams of carbs per day, now it's set at a maximum of 200 grams of carbs per day. And they've now observed a huge drop in their um, clients' requirements for insulin and blood sugar lowering medication. It's now only like 10% of cases require pharmacological intervention. I mean, that's huge. And that also saves so much money. I mean, it just saves everyone so much money. Diabetes is so much easier to manage if you're doing as much as you can with food and then only adding in the medication as needed rather than trying to chase these crazy blood sugar roller coasters caused Mm. by a high carb diet and then trying to counter those with insulin. Mm. It's like, it's a lot of work. It's really challenging. And especially with the, um, some of the clientele that I worked with for a while who were uh, low income and low literacy, you know, having to calculate all your grams of carbs you're eating and then calculate your insulin dose and make sure you're taking up the right amount in the syringe. And then did any insulin leak out when you injected it? And then it's just as it's a, it's a hot mess. And, you know, across the board, people are so much happier when they don't have to do that. Or if they do, you have, you know, a minimal dose. And so the margin of error is also much smaller if, your math isn't perfect or something goes wrong with your insulin. Yeah. Lily, you must have been so proud when you heard that about the Czech Republic. Like that is amazing to have your work go into like public policy. Oh yeah. It was, it was huge. Total surprise. Um, Yeah. yeah. And from, of all things, a connection that was made on Twitter. So, you know, social media has its downsides, but it can also be, have a really great way of, connecting people across the globe. So yeah, it it does make me hopeful that, you know, the Czech Republic is a small country. I I don't know that the US is going to be, you know, right around the corner changing guidelines. But I, I do hope because, you know, it's not just the gestational diabetes um, issue. But even if you go for things like the protein issue, like if we were able to correct the protein requirements, 
per pregnancy, you would actually have an automatic increase in a lot of the micronutrient intake among pregnant women that's currently lacking. Yeah. Um, because a lot of your protein rich foods also have your vitamin B12 and your iron and your zinc and your preformed vitamin A and your choline. And so it kind of turns into a, a cascade effect, um, even if you're able to make that small shift there on the protein. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, I'm wanting to go on and discuss your second book that you released in 2018, Real Food for Pregnancy. But the first thing I want to know, Lily, did you get any pushback from others in your field or around your guidelines and how they might have differed from your first book about gestational diabetes? Because I guess as well, there is actually a lot of research around that low carb and its benefits for diabetes, but there's so much more now in 2020 than when you published back in, in 2015. Did you get any pushback from colleagues as to your differing recommendations compared to the kind of conventional ones? You know, it's actually been pretty surprising in that I haven't had that much pushback. And I think part of the reason is that I cite my work. So I cite the studies, you know, line by line and sentences so that people can see why I'm making the recommendation that I am. They know that I'm not just pulling it out of thin air. So I think that's part of it. Mm. Um, I will also say that I sort of intentionally held back going, you know, way extreme with, with recommendations, uh, you know, A, because I don't think it's necessary, but B, I, you know, I give a range of carbohydrate intake um, that I think works just fine in practice. I mean, really, this is what I was doing in practice. Um, so for example, like the highest meal plan I recommend has 150 grams of carbs because there mm. are indeed people with gestational diabetes who can totally tolerate 150 grams of carbs a day. And so there is a meal plan showing that amount, even though I have two other meal plans at lesser amounts of carbohydrates. So I think having sort of an incremental um, approach there helped people maybe uh, not push back too hard. Um, in some ways, I felt like people were, colleagues rather, were really waiting for a resource like this because they too had observed that the levels of carbs recommended didn't work in practice, but they were afraid to go lower because they were afraid of negative consequences on fetal development. And I very clearly outline why that is not uh, a concern in the book cited to all the research on ketones and ketosis in pregnancy. And it, it's a huge can of worms that we could talk about for probably two hours. Um, but I think that gave a lot of people reassurance that, oh, what I've observed in practice is actually okay to do. Um, yeah. So I hear from some, uh, you know, maternal health, uh, you know, OBGYN practices that employ dietitians that they've been able to um, shift over their just in their small practice, their uh, teaching materials, for example, to have a lower carb meal plan option. Um, so if some of this is just sort of like tiny little grassroots change where if you can change, you know, one office's practice and they have better outcomes, then, you know, the next office will change their practice and they have better outcomes. And um, it's been really 
really pretty great to hear. But um, yeah. I was very concerned about pushback, of course, when um, I went to print. Very yeah. concerned. And I've been very surprised to not have um, nearly as much of that as, as I would have expected. That's awesome. And then, of course, you went on to then write your book, Real Food um, for Pregnancy. Yes. Yeah. So with regards to some of the nutrient deficiencies that you came across in the literature, things that we need to be concerned about, I suppose, or mindful of if we're women wanting to become pregnant or clinicians who are working with pregnant women, because I'll just um, preface that by saying, you know, you get women to get their blood results done or blood tests done through the doctor and then they'll, they'll bring you their results. And because they fall within those normal reference ranges, the, you know, blood work is fine. So, and, you know, that might be that a, you have a ferritin that's 21, but because it's above 20, no problem. When you were doing your research for your book, Lily, did you come across any kind of patterns around common deficiencies, areas which, which kind of um, raise red flags for you? Absolutely. Yeah. So... First of all, when people get regular lab work done, I mean, I know when I went in from during my first pregnancy to get, you know, first trimester labs done and I'm asking what they're actually going to test. And it's essentially nothing of value in terms of things that I can modify in my diet or lifestyle to improve. Yeah. Um, so they don't really test very much, even sometimes testing Probably the one nutrient that they do usually test for is, um, you know, iron deficiency. But even that is not always routine to assess iron levels early on. Maybe they'll do it later in pregnancy, identify it when it's already a problem. Mm. Um, but it's usually not something done during pregnancy. So that opens a whole can of worms on lab tests that um, we can go into if you want. But to address your question on micronutrient deficiencies, yeah, it's pretty surprising if you look at the um, data from the U.S., for example, which is considered a, a developed country and, you know, there's adequate access to food for most people, although that might be a little bit different in the, you know, COVID era. There's actually quite a high rate of micronutrient deficiencies. Um, mm -hmm. One study was looking at, um, I believe it was eight or maybe nine micronutrients, and they found 47% of pregnant or breastfeeding women are at risk for at least one micronutrient deficiency. And that was only looking at really a, a small, a select group of nutrients. Had they included choline in the list, for example, which they mm -hmm. didn't in that study, we know that somewhere between 90 to 95% of pregnant women are not consuming enough choline. We know with vitamin A, about 30% of people are not consuming enough vitamin A. And that is even in developed countries who have adequate access to the you know, highest vitamin A food sources. You can see issues with uh, vitamin D. That's a nutrient that I um, delved into quite a bit. Rates of deficiency in vitamin D are, well, a lot of it varies based on where you live in the globe and how much sun exposure you have and your you know, skin color, which can impact the amount of vitamin D you make from the sun and on and on. Um, but it really, it's the majority of people <laughs> have vitamin D deficiency. And in some countries, especially where people are either covered, maybe for um, religious reasons or um, modesty reasons, or if you're at a very high latitude, so living 
far away from the equator, rates of vitamin D deficiency can be between you know, 80 and 98% in some areas. Mm. And that's even using, if we're going to talk about lab reference ranges, that's using a pretty low threshold to even call people deficient. If you actually raise that threshold to more of a functional medicine uh, level, you would see pretty much everybody deficient yeah. in vitamin D. So there's a lot of micronutrients that we could go into because there's, you know, in addition to people often being deficient or not taking in enough, there's research questioning whether the RDA for certain nutrients is accurate. And so yeah. the themes that I see around that are that a lot of the micronutrients that maybe should have a revised goalpost. Hmm. Um, a lot of those nutrients are the ones that we source from animal foods. So that raises some concerns if we're um, looking at the trends towards everybody going for a plant-based vegetarian or particularly a vegan diet, where if you completely omit or severely restrict intake of animal foods, then lo and behold, you're going to have pretty much 100% of pregnant women choline deficient unless you're going to start supplementing everybody, you know? Um, So it, yes, it does point to, um, you know, I believe uh, the need for an omnivorous diet, but also careful consideration on not just intake of iron and folate. (laughs) It seems like those are the two nutrients people think about for prenatal nutrition. Yeah. And I think we really need to broaden it um, far beyond that. Yeah. Lily, so if um, someone wants to know, you know, what should I get tested to make sure that I'm not only adequate, but I'm actually, you know, sufficient in micronutrients, what would be your advice? What should they, what should they get tested? Well, it's kind of tricky um, because if, if you're working with a conventional doctor, they're Mm -hmm. probably not going to be very familiar with ordering nutrient panels on measuring a bunch of micronutrients. So if you're just working with a conventional practitioner on a very baseline level, having an iron panel that includes your ferritin, I think is important. Having um, your vitamin D levels checked, so 25-hydroxy-D. And then maybe considering you know, some surrogate markers of like folate metabolism and methylation, like homocysteine Mm. levels can be really helpful because that can show if things are off with like your folate and B12 and B6, even if you're not measuring those nutrients precisely, that can be helpful. And that's something I'm thinking in mind of like what a conventional doctor would be familiar with ordering right now. Um, Beyond that, if we're still really staying focused on the nutrition side of things, you could request something like a folate or a vitamin B12 level and see where you're at with that. Those both play a role in, you know, neural tube defects. But if you really want to go far beyond that, you're probably going to need, you know, just a micronutrient panel. There's many different ones available, but they're mostly through labs that functional medicine practitioners are used to Mm. Um, ordering. So the ones I mentioned would would kind of be like baseline, but you can do, you know, advanced lab testing and get your, you know, levels of omega-3s and all the different, you know, DHA and EPA and everything listed out. You can get a check on your trace mineral status. Um, There's so many things that, so many other things that you could be measuring, but it's not something that um, many conventional practitioners are necessarily trained in. So Mm. that's a bit tricky. 
Yeah, it can be tricky. And here in um, New Zealand and Australia, we've got a company, NutraSearch and NutriPath, and you can order through practitioner those kind of panels that you're you're talking uh, about. Yep. Yeah, I don't. So they are available. As I understand it, it's much more um, available in the States, maybe in Canada. And, and uh, Yeah, yeah. Here we have, you know, like Genova's NutriVal mm-hmm. panel is a popular one with um, functional medicine practitioners and people who work with, you know, fertility clients. There's a couple others, but I'd say that one is probably one of the most um, common ones. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, beyond the nutritional aspect, just if we want to be complete on the lab part of it. I think it's also helpful to check um, thyroid function with a full thyroid panel um, and also assess, you know, your blood sugar status, even if it's just something as basic as like a hemoglobin A1C in your first trimester, Mm. that can um, very much help you understand your risk for gestational diabetes. Mm. Um, They tend to be pretty highly correlated if your A1C is in the pre-diabetic range, actually in the state of California, by the guidelines I worked on, we would actually treat your pregnancy as a gestational diabetes pregnancy if, if the A1C came back in the um, pre-diabetic range. Yeah. So that would give you a signal of something that you can work on, right? Like, oh, my blood sugar is a little high. Let me keep an eye on that, yeah. um, which has very, if you keep your blood sugar levels in the normal range for pregnancy, I mean, you're greatly reducing any risk of adverse outcomes for a baby. It's probably one of the most important factors. And especially in today's world, where about half of the adult US population has diabetes or prediabetes. So um, that's a really important one for people to have on their radar. Yeah, it was interesting on that. um, I on that uh, blood sugar one, there was very recently, maybe a month ago, a paper came out from some researchers was surprising, actually, because it came out from um, Professor John Hawley, who is traditionally well known for his work in sports nutrition in in Australia, but their recommendations uh, were based on fasting, actually, for pregnancy and um, blood sugar control. And they made an almost blanket recommendation for pregnant women to, Mm -hmm. to consume all of their food within 10 to 12 hours. Now, which which wow interesting yeah i thought it was really interesting and i think and obviously in part because obviously you know the longer your eating window extends the harder it can be to kind of control your blood sugar outside of of that like and certainly you know 12 hours isn't at all you know it's not extreme in terms Mm -hmm. of you know eating Mm -hmm. all your food but in today's world and as as we both know like for a lot of people, they're eating over 15, 16 hours. So um, I'd love to read that study because I actually have a blog on my website on um, intermittent fasting and pregnancy. Uh, So that would be a really interesting study to add some, um, you know, counterpoints because my, my interpretation was basically anything other than something like a naturally occurring overnight 12 hour fast Mm. because you're not hungry. Mm. Um, anything beyond that you might want to be careful with because it gets tricky. Like, you know, in the first trimester when you're really nauseous, a lot of people wake up in the middle of the night and want to eat. Mm. I mean, I know I did. It really helped with the nausea. Um, Not every night, but some nights you wake up and you're just famished. And then maybe second trimester, you could get away with the 12 hour window. And then third trimester, it's tricky to eat big meals. So if you're really trying to do a a strict intermittent fast, and of course, a 12 hour window, I wouldn't consider strict intermittent fasting, but 
your stomach is so compressed by baby pushing up on it that it's sometimes hard to eat big meals. A lot of people kind of fall into the small meals and snacks and sort of like eating like a bird during those last few months. So I don't know. It's a, it's interesting. I can see why it would be, you know, beneficial metabolically just as we have all of the non-pregnant data. Mm. Uh, but this could also be a bit of a situation of the person who has the lab knowledge, but not the real life experience of being pregnant and feeling what it's like, you know, and when you need to eat, you need to eat. Sorry. And if you can't eat, you know, much dinner because you're, you know, you have heartburn or, you know, everything's uncomfortable, then maybe you're going to have a smaller dinner and have a small snack before bed. And is that so bad? So I don't know. I'd be interested to read that study. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I'll see what I can find and forward it through to you, Lily. Um, Tina, you do raise such a good point. Like I talk to so many women who, who are so stressed about doing things properly during their pregnancy because of the messages around, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't snack. We should only eat meals. We should try not to eat or try to stick all your food within, you know, 10 to 12 hours. Um, shouldn't consume anything white. You know, jam is off the menu. You know, yet all they want is white bread and jam. You know, they're not <laughs> sleeping, but they know that sleep is so important for metabolic health mm-hmm. and they can really work themselves up. And I just, I really feel for them because their body is not giving them the platform to kind of instigate all the things that they quote unquote are the healthy things to do because it's, you just, I imagine you just can't during that nine months because you're not really so many things you can't control. Yes. There's a lot of things you can't control in pregnancy. So um, it's a, it's a very humbling experience Mm. and a practice in surrendering, which I think is the perfect, um, the per it, it actually is the perfect way to practice for both birth, which requires very much uh, surrender to letting your body doing its thing, Mm -hmm. but also motherhood in that you have to surrender a lot of your expectations and many, many other things in order to show up and, and mother and learn from your children, which come into the world with very distinct personalities, I have learned. Um, So yeah, it's kind of hard because I think there does need to be a bit of a balance of, you know, the science says this and eat all of these nourishing foods and follow these rules for optimal metabolic health. And then just sort of countered with a dose of reality, which is that the first trimester, usually that's when the nausea hits about 90% of women are going to be experiencing some degree of nausea during that phase. And Mm -hmm. so you're not, and and also the food aversions and nausea usually go hand in hand. So people just tend not to eat as nutritiously in the first trimester. And Mm -hmm. this is, this is definitely the case for both of my pregnancies too. And I think that's, you know, okay, we need to offer some reassurance around that because that is a time where your preconception nutrient stores, as well as the endometrial glands within the uterus are actually what's fueling the embryo and fetus, right? So there's that side of it. There's also the, on some level, yes, we can influence outcomes by doing certain things, but it's really more about stacking the deck in your favor than it is guaranteeing any particular outcome. So if, Mm -hmm. you know, a pregnancy complication arises, I think people 
their um, default is to blame it on themselves that they've done something wrong or this particular happens in the case of um, pregnancy loss or miscarriage and oftentimes it was nothing that they did it's just not every pregnancy it goes very smoothly um to to put it very kindly um and and that i think we also need to offer some reassurance that yeah you can control what you can control but you got to let go of the uncontrollables and you know you're just doing the best that you can so Mm -hmm. i like to have people celebrate their small wins you know they're in the nausea phase and it's like you got in three bites of egg that's amazing even if really breakfast was mostly sourdough bread and butter which is not necessarily a bad thing right but if you're really thinking super hard about it you'll be like oh I don't want to have too many grains and too many carbs or I don't want to have this and yet that's the only thing that's going to settle your stomach Mm. right have to Mm -hmm. sort of just own it move on the next snack next meal and just just roll with it because there are plenty of ups and downs in in pregnancy. So I always like to temper my advice with a bit of reassurance too. Mm, mm. That's and I really like what you said about just surrender to it because I think otherwise you're right. Like you, the negative consequences of just being stressed all of the time and and how you feel about the whole situation. Like it would change everything. Yeah, to take it further when you're really stressed and you're inducing a cortisol response because you're not complying with the perfect way of doing anything, you've mm. probably undone any benefit anyways, because you can read all the studies on high cortisol and stress and how that negatively impacts pregnancy outcomes. We all need to, you know, just sort of balance <laughs> balance the, you know, really proactive nutrition movement side of us with just some it'll all work out. <laughs> yeah, totally. And um, Lily, do you know, I, when I listened to you on another podcast with Rod Wolf, and I believe this was in 2019 and uh, might've been that podcast or another one. I stalk some of your podcasts because you always mm-hmm. like deliver such amazing information. Um, you talked about um, post-pregnancy and um, it really got in my head, this idea of postnatal depletion. And I'd only heard, and I don't know whether I heard you use the term, but I've got a, um, a friend, a naturopath friend who uses it as well, which I think really perfectly describes, you know, how a woman comes through giving birth and then just, I suppose, the nutrient state that she'll be in whilst she's now suddenly got 300% more demands kind of placed on her in terms of her own expectations and, of course, a little baby human and, and all the rest of it. So what are the, um, I suppose, do you have any recommendations for women in and around postnatal depletion? Is that a term that, that you've used? Yes. So yeah. postnatal depletion, I'd have to go back to the paper, but it, it, the term has been around for decades. Hmm. Um, and it's this notion that um, nutrient stores are depleted over the course of pregnancy. And so women come out on the other side depleted. Um, And then on top of that, you have the increased demands of caring for a baby and for many people breastfeeding as well, which additionally pulls from your nutrient reserves. And a lot of people are not supported enough to keep themselves well nourished in Mm. postpartum that you can end up in, you know, fairly ill health 
fairly quickly if you don't have the support and the nourishment um, that really was kind of built into the way that a lot of traditional cultures approached um, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there is a practice globally. There's very much similarity across very different cultures in how they approached postpartum. And oftentimes there was a period of four to six weeks, or often it was 40 days, where the mother was mothered for a while. And usually by older women in her family or in her community, in her tribe. And your job for that early time was to rest, recover, and bond with your baby. And everything else was taken care of. I mean, taking care of a baby is already like a lot of work and it's 24-7. But there would be people there to cook and clean and help feed you and hold the baby when you need to bathe and um, you weren't trying to juggle at all. And I can't remember the exact statistic, but a shockingly high proportion of mothers in the United States go back to birth or go back, go back to birth, go back to work um, within two weeks postpartum, which is absolutely inhumane. That is not enough time to heal. Even if you had the smoothest, pregnancy and birth and early start to lactation, that is not enough time, like bar none. And I think New Zealand and pretty much everywhere else other than the US and a handful of other countries have some sort of a a national maternity leave um, policy where there is more um, rest and recovery time uh, naturally sort of built into societal expectations. Mm. Um, But coming as somebody from the US and particularly, you know, as a self-employed entrepreneur, um, there's a lot of pressure for people like myself to get back to work right away. And it was pretty humbling. I visited a a friend in um, Canada uh, late in my second pregnancy. And it was interesting. She asked me, oh, how long are you uh, planning to take for your maternity leave? The full 12 months or longer? Like that was her default. Wow. Because in Canada, you get the option of 12 months paid leave, or I think you can take it over 18 months at the 12 month paycheck over a year and a half. And that's hilarious because my American counterparts would be like, oh, are you taking six weeks? Or the ones who are like my fellow entrepreneurs who think they're planning a quote long maternity leave would Mm -hmm. be like, are you going to take like two months, three months? Some might even go to four months. Um, there's a different expectation, I think, in the U.S. And of course, this goes back for generations of generations where even, you know, our own mothers and grandmothers don't know how to care for new mothers. <laughs> so you have to be, it puts an interesting burden on yourself as a new mom in that in order to get the support you need to recover well, you actually have to do extra work up front um, to prepare for it. So in pregnancy for myself, for example, I was like doing, you know, postpartum freezer meal prep starting at 
20 weeks, I learned the hard way the first time that like, whoa, you really need to have some meals on hand because it's pretty much impossible to cook with a newborn. I, I did have a, a meal train where people in my community brought meals that first time around, which I did not set up and was so grateful for. Um, so I made sure that was going to happen the second time. But I also called in for my mom to, to be there to help out. And she was happy to do it. But that mm. wouldn't have been her default had I not asked. Mm. And it's not like she isn't, you know, a loving mother. She definitely is. But that was not in her default because her mom yeah. didn't come and stay for a long period of time and cook lots of her meals and do all that postpartum because that tradition had been broken many generations yeah. um, in the past. So, you know, I think I've spent this whole time talking about postnatal deple- depletion, actually talking about support instead of the food side of it, but that is the support is necessary for the nourishment to happen Um, without the support. I mean, you can do all of the pre-planning. I mean, I did a lot of that too, the freezer meal prep and all that stuff that can take some of the brunt off, but there is something very irreplaceable about having people there sort of on the ground level Mm. with you in those very vulnerable, emotional Um, tender parts in early postpartum. It is just, you can't describe how much you need that. Um, Mm -hmm. But your early postpartum experience is a very, and birth itself is a very transformative part in your life. And if it doesn't go well, it sticks with you for a long time. And if it does go well, that feeling of support also sticks with you for a long time as well beyond just the food and nutritional part which is super Mm -hmm. important but that feeling of collectiveness and and you know love and intergenerational care so i don't think we can you know overstate how important the postpartum period is i I, arguably i think it is just as important maybe more important than um (laughs) the pregnancy part because we all we all are focused on maybe not all of us, but many people are focused on taking care of themselves in pregnancy, but they don't really think to extend that same Mm. um, level of care uh, postpartum. And it's kind of a, you know, a rude awakening when you end up postpartum without a lot of support. And then you're like, oh crap, I can't do this by myself. How did everybody else do this before? Yeah. (laughs) They all like struggled through it and we shouldn't be doing that. We should break this cycle and get yeah. back to what traditionally worked so well. Yeah. And I remember I, I heard you talk about that, that, you know, there was, there are a lot of guidelines around the conception phase and what you need to do to prep, to become pregnant, what you need to do whilst pregnant. And then it's almost like it all stops like, mm-hmm. yep, baby comes sweet back to real <laughs> life, you know? And I, and, and maybe in part that might place just additional expectations for women because it's not, you know, it's not really talked about that much in terms of additional things that they need to consider around the support post-pregnancy. For whatever reason, they don't really think about it. From that nutrient depletion thing, you did, you described it really beautifully, actually, when you were like, um, you know, you, you might have a woman who has a cesarean and people are like, oh, well, you know, you had a C-section, but they may have, may have been an emergency C-section after going right. through labor for like 18 hours and then realizing... Right. Like just the, the, what the body goes through. Um, it's which, really incredible. 
Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible, the whole process of growing and and birthing a baby. But yeah, the level of um, depletion, I believe, will also correlate not only with like your nutrient stores coming into pregnancy. So preconception, I I don't think we can overstate how important that part is as well. Mm. Your nutrient intake during pregnancy, but also your experience of birth. One of my friends describes it as like a a bank account where you can like, if you start your pregnancy with a full bank account, you know, you're going to be drawing out deposits the whole time, but then there's less to replenish uh, postpartum. Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, I certainly felt that uh, firsthand with my two kids because I had a long uh, labor with my son, everything ultimately went well, but it was very exhausting, Mm. very exhausting, like 22 hour labor. Mm. And so I felt really weak for a long time. Uh, And then with my second, it was a really beautiful, fairly swift three hour labor. Everything went great. Um, But I felt really good. The healing went really well. I felt, you know, back to square one, maybe not square one, because it does take a long time to replenish everything. But I, I didn't feel as uh, significantly depleted the second Mm -hmm. time Mm. around. Um, And I would say nutritionally, I was probably consuming, you know, pretty similar amounts of food. It just I had done so much more meal prep and outsourced a lot more of the (laughs) meal prep to other people, that it was less of me having to expend energy to prepare food. And you know, it's, it's hard. I think it's hard for people to imagine that like, you won't be able to cook. It's like, you really don't want to be on your feet all that much. Um, especially in that first week. And in fact, a lot of postpartum traditions have a period of time where they want you to be primarily bed bound, (laughs) like primarily horizontal and healing. Um, and you, you feel it early postpartum, like you want to be in bed for a while. So um, we, we have to create the support system and the space for that to happen. Nice. Totally, Lily. And um, do you know, I was coming on today going to talk to you all about folate and also briefly touch on uh, baby food and sodium, but like we've completely run out of time. Um, <laughs> but I think you've really shared like some really important kind of knowledge from your kind of background in terms of what you see is important and and what you've learned and a lot of what we've talked about aren't things which people think about so if that's I mean I think that people will find it really helpful just to get your perspective or the different perspective with regards to kind of pregnancy and and also of course postpartum what I will say is that your website is just this absolute wealth of information and you share so much amazing information on there, including aforementioned um, just recently published folate blog. Um, it's like a thesis in itself, actually, Lily. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the um, sodium and baby food, I found that a really fascinating read as well. Equally, you could probably spend hours talking about that. But look, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been really, it's been great. And your Real Food and Pregnancy book um, and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, they're both available on Amazon. And I think I've seen them actually in some New Zealand bookstores too. Yeah, I know. I don't know if it's in, I always mix up, not, you'll probably hate me for this, but I always mix up like Australia and New Zealand. And I don't know which one 
carries which, but I know there's a store called Nutrition for Life, I believe, that carries it. Um, some of the supply chains and shipping has been kind of thrown off with this um, COVID stuff. So I've heard from some people in Australia that they're having a trickier time getting it this year than I have heard before. But unfortunately, that's a bit out of my hands. <laughs> it's a little bit out of your control. And yeah. Depository for us is brilliant because it's free shipping. It's based in the uh, UK and I've, yes. and I've seen it there as well. Um, uh, great. Yeah, Lily, thanks so much for your time this morning. It's been awesome. And I'll put um, the links to the um, to your website, obviously, in the show notes for this. But um, you've been very generous. Thank you. Thank you. So, team, I hope you really enjoyed that. And I have to say, Lily's books are some of the best resources around for practitioners and just you know you, anyone interested in this space and she actually helps form some of the curriculum in that registered dietitian space as well which I just find is so interesting and, and just so awesome so that was Lily Nichol and Lily Nichols I'm sorry and next week I cannot wait for you to tune on in to my conversation with Cynthia Montalomi who is the 400 meter world record a holder who eats a diet predominantly based on meat fish and nuts so that is just a little bit of a primer for that interview so much more to Cynthia than that until then though if you enjoyed this interview and this podcast please hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast platform please leave us a five-star review because that just really helps with getting uh, Wikipedia out there to a wider audience share this with your mates and if you've got any questions or want to hit me up for to interview anyone don't hesitate to get hold of me and that is via Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition or at Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can also sign up to some of my real food nutrition plans, online nutrition coaching for athletes, for fat loss or just for inspiration and um, better understanding on a good diet where you will get my weekly email, weekly forums and the ability to just ask me any questions 24-7 on our online platform. So enjoy the rest of your week team, look forward to catching you next week. <laughs>